Welcome to another week of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Of course, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery, Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drance is still on the road covering the Canucks. I am coming to you live from the Kintec studio Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You're going to want to get your thoughts in because, uh, boy, do we have a lot to get into, Drancer, after a weekend that saw the Canucks lose twice to teams much, much better at them. And now we're... We're back in a very familiar place, which is not so much wondering if something dramatic is going to happen, although I guess that is, you know, still to be confirmed, but it it does seem we're entering into the when does something dramatic happen uh, with the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, and something's got to give, clearly, but, you know, I don't want to completely squirrel this here and say this is good, but honestly, this is good. This is what needed to happen right this is now reaching that moment where things become indisputable right where where this club's need to dramatically reshape the overall direction of the franchise is sort of like can is it arguable anymore doesn't feel very arguable I don't think that it is I I don't think that it is and Look, there's this uh there's just been this kind of ongoing debate, right, about whether the players on the Canucks are kind of to blame for shooting themselves in the foot, not living up to their potential, you know, for whatever reason not playing with enough accountability, or on the other hand, the team is, you know, to quote a phrase we hear a lot, just not good enough. And I think it's pretty clear that both of those things can be true simultaneously, and I think we've seen yeah. ample evidence, ample evidence just in the past four games, of both of those things being true, right? Like in Ottawa and Montreal, it was the first argument I laid out. You know, those are those are not expertly constructed teams. Those are mediocre teams that the Canucks should at the very least be equal with on a talent from a talent perspective, and they blew it. They played awful defensively. They made boneheaded mistakes. Uh, they get the win in Ottawa, again, because Ottawa's not that good, but they lose Montreal because they, they did not play up to their talent level. And then over the weekend, you saw the flip side of it, right? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think they they dogged it or mailed it in against either Toronto or Boston. You just saw the massive, massive talent gap between the Canucks and legitimate top teams, teams that actually have you know a hope of doing something meaningful when the Stanley Cup playoffs roll around. And when <laughs> when both of those things are undoubtedly true, right? That the players are not living up to their potential, and and even if they were, it wouldn't be good enough. When you have just continuing evidence staring at you in the face that both of those things are true, I don't know how you argue against, as you said, a massive change in direction. Like, we've seen it all on display, all on display in this road trip, the evidence you need to decide to go in a different in a different way. So, for me, the Toronto loss was worse than the Boston one, okay? I thought Boston obviously put up a more crooked scoreline because their power play was clicking and you know, Boston right now is just wagoning everybody, right? But the Toronto game, just the way that the Maple Leafs beat the Canucks, took the game over, 
and played pucks into space and controlled the entire game 150 feet from their own net. I thought that was like a pretty embarrassing performance, to be totally honest with you. Like I thought that was a level of being outclassed that no prideful organization should be able to swallow with any ease, right? The sort of game where you have to look yourself in the mirror uh, if you're a fan, if you're a member of the team, if you're a player, if you're management, and just think, oh, man, like we really can't. We really can't keep this going, and yet I sort of think they should. I sort of think a, a lot of losing is what's called for, right? My view of this is not inconsistent with what I was probably saying about this team after the same number of games were played last season and the club had one more point. Mm -hmm. I, I remember a rant early in the year last year where I talked about total failure. Yeah. Total organizational failure. And I sort of went through my, my usual checklist, right? No prospects, no cap space, not good enough now. <laughs> I mean, I, I went through the whole routine and then the club started winning club made the coaching change they hired bruce boudreau and there was someone to blame again right for all the talk that fingers had to stop being pointed there was someone to blame again travis green actually look look at what this team's doing 106 point pace jim benning wasn't that far off there was someone to point to and blame and management's off season sort of reinforced that right the the changes weren't as dramatic as we'd probably expected them to be, particularly because management so publicly stated mm -hmm. that they didn't buy into the form uh, uh, that the club showed over the latter 57 games. Certainly, you know, I didn't right? like certainly as the Canucks were winning. I didn't really deviate too much from my total failure stance so much as I was just giving the players credit for not quitting, giving Bruce Boudreaux some credit for breathing some life into the organization. Um, but, you know, I was the stick in the mud the whole time and there was a reason for it. I didn't see a team that was playing well. I saw a team that was winning games on the back of outrageous shooting luck and fabulous goaltending and like truly fabulous goaltending, best in the league goaltending. This year we've seen what it looks like. Like here's the scariest part about this road trip for me, Jamie. Vancouver's goaltending has hurt them this season without question. And yet over the course of these four games, Vancouver's goaltending five on five has been nine sixteen, which is basically average. Mm -hmm. Like this is what it, this is. This is what the team looks like with average goaltending earlier in the season. We saw what they looked like with below average goaltending. and It wasn't pretty. Now we've seen the, what they look, what they look like with average goaltending. And I, I just think it's impossible to understate how poor these performances have been, right? Ottawa was sloppy as anything. They were extraordinarily lucky that the senators were profligate, wasteful, in front of net, right? They were extremely dull in terms of their cutting edge. It was brutal, and it allowed the Canucks to win that game the, and come back. The second period against Ottawa was, I mean, maybe until the Toronto, maybe until the Toronto game, the worst defensive period of the season for the Canucks, which is saying something. And you're right; they were ex extraordinarily fortunate that Ottawa didn't bury them in that game and left the door open for them to come back in the third. The the, the Montreal performance was bad, and then the first ten minutes in Montreal were worse. Right. And then and then Toronto, you know, tr the, they build that lead, but they weren't full value for that lead. Toronto was getting in behind their defense constantly on the rush. It's just that Spencer Martin held for a period. That's that's the only thing that happened. Spencer Martin held for a period and the Canucks got a power play goal. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that Otherwise, was the that was the least surprising blown two goal lead of all time. 
Oh, the least surprising. Was there was Particularly not, not a single person said, wow, I can't believe they gave up that lead. They weren't even the better team as they built it. No. And then, and then when Toronto flexed for 40 minutes at, at Scotiabank Arena, it was, I, I mean, honestly, I think a humiliating performance. And then last night against Boston, Boston did Boston things. I actually think Vancouver played way better on Sunday night than they did against Toronto. Uh, uh, even though they were playing the second game of a back-to-back, -back, I thought they were way better. Well, way better. Last night, but they're just not even close. Well, that's the thing. The the game against Boston is the ultimate. The ultimate. They're just not good enough game because Boston. How much? Like how much of a? How much? Or how close to a hundred percent effort did Boston get in that game? Oh, not no, very not, close. Not, not very close. You know what? They got Same up. With the Leafs though. That's yep. the worst part. The Leafs too. It was a both of those games. The Canucks are getting patted gently on the head. Right now, it's well, it's tough. it's great to say. Well, hey, you know the Canucks had more of a push in the third period, and they generated some scoring chances. Boston was on the second half of a back-to-back -to -back too, and there was not a single second in that game where the Bruins were worried about losing. Not a single second. They did not have to. They did not even have to get close to getting out of second gear in that third period to put the Canucks to bed. So yes, they played better, but the fact that they played better and it still looked like that is damning in and of itself. Now, this is good. Again, I'm coming back to it. This is hard to watch. This is pain. I've been advocating for pain for a while. I can't say that the Canucks need to court years of failure and reap the rewards of, of failing, you know, just right, and then, and then get squeamish when it comes, right? I'm not going to do that. This is what they need. This is what the team needs. This is what the team should be looking to continue to do. Unfortunately, in my view. So we had a texter text in, so it's good to you, Drance, when Bruce Boudreaux loses his job? No. I wouldn't fire Bruce Boudreaux. I wouldn't see the Canucks fire Bruce Boudreaux. I don't believe that Bruce Boudreaux is this team's problem. Nor, no, no more than I believe that Travis Green was. You know? I, I would keep Bruce Boudreaux. Because for me, what I really don't want to see is any chance that this team rebounds and muddies the waters again. What I really don't want to see is any glimmer of hope given to an organization that will seize whatever thin basis they can take, that they can grasp onto, and use it to lie to themselves and their fans about this team's chances of turning around quickly. I think it's important that the nine years of short-sightedness that have brought us to this point are, like, are given the opportunity to work through the body of this team and be repudiated entirely. I think it's time for this organization to take its medicine and that medicine tastes bitter, right? It's, it sucks. It's awful. And I feel for the fans, but this is the way, this is what has to happen. This is what this team has to go through. And you know what? At the end of this season, honestly, they're probably going to have to do it again. And at the end of that season, totally, honestly, they're probably going to have to do it again. Like that's what this is going to take. It's really important that we be clear-eyed about that. We can't avert our eyes. We can't pretend there are quick fixes here. We can't. Any trade made to shake this up should be done with the end goal of losing more in mind. If you're making a coaching change because it's just untenable day-to-day, -day, that should also be done not with fixing the structure, but with making sure you're aligned incentives wise to play young players, right? Like bringing in a coach on a multi-year deal 
who's going to be there to develop, who's who's going to be judged not on wins and losses, but on implementing structure and player development. Like if you're doing that, fine. But if you're changing the coach with with any hope of having some sort of bounce or because you think it's going to fix things, that's the wrong call. I think you're just better off leaving Bruce Boudreau in charge, to be totally honest with you. At least the fans like him. Like, at least he's marketable and he's a good person and he seems to be getting the most out of guys like Elias Pettersson, and that matters to me. So, you know, there's no easy way through this. There's no fast way through this. It's time to accept that. And, and by the way, I think most of the fans do. I think the market well, knows now. I'll tell you what, just reading the text coming into our inbox, Drance, it is unanimous at the moment. Not to say that it's actually unanimous, but right now coming in, it's please, please let this pain continue, but have a purpose. Pay off with something positive in the end, unlike the pain of the last, you know, eight, eight nine years, right? Like, so I right. absolutely think that there is uh, the, there's, the, an the, there's fan for appetite for it, yeah. There's um, appetite for this, and the appetite and the appetite will be wetted further once it's done with discipline and intent, right? Like, unfortunately, what what makes this all so hard is in in particular the commitment made to JT Miller before the season, right? Because as I shape what I think should come next for the Canucks, because I don't think a coaching change matters, and I definitely don't think a trade matters unless it carves out a ton of cap space and brings futures back, right? I don't think either of those things matter, big picture. At most, it's going to be, uh, you know, a little bit of lipstick on uh, lipstick, lipstick on a pig. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, lipstick. At most, it's going to be a little bit of lipstick, which I'm sure is a German word for lipstick on a pig. <laughs> the... <laughs> the only thing that actually matters big picture now for the Canucks is to accept this, is accept this and go about working to fix it. And, and I come back to the Miller deal not to pin things on Miller himself, but because the real folly of that is the timing. You know, that's what I can't get over. I, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to model this and game plan this and, and, and try to pitch like, you know, wh- what I think should happen next. And the, the fly in the ointments, that Miller commitment. And it just occurs to me that, you know, one thing about Bo Horvat, and I know there's a lot of talk about how the club was positioned, having not met with his representatives as they came through Toronto this weekend. But, I mean, to me, that's not a shock. Like, you can't sign Horvat. You just you can't sign a 27-year-old to a long-term significant commitment when your team is set up and performing the way the Canucks are, even if he's the furthest thing from the problem, which I believe that he is even if he's your captain. Like, the time to do that was over the summer. The time to do that was was before the returns started to come in and you realized, you know, w- quite overwhelmingly that you were going to lose, you know, the county, that you were going to lose <laughs> this particular race. So with Miller, though, I mean, they just permitted so much future value to walk out the door the moment that deal was signed. Right. If if that deal wasn't signed, you'd have a great asset on your hands. A guy who's performing at a point per game rate right now, who can play center and wing, who brings this swashbuckling, hard to play against mentality that teams look for, who blocks shots to get you your first win of the season and then plays the next night, even though, you know, it's not easy for him to put his boot on. Right. I mean, I, I really want to note, like, I'm not criticizing Miller as a player or person here. It's the timing that I just can't get over. If the club had 
two assets like Horvat and Miller to sell here, you'd be looking at something where you can actually say, hey, maybe it's only two, three more years of pain. Maybe you can turn this around, you know, and, and build around Hughes and Pedersen still before they're 28. But now, you know, now you put Miller more in the Oliver Ekman Larson box. Like it's a problem to be solved, a problem to be solved as opposed to a, a, an asset that can help you. And that's where, you know, the asset poverty, like the poor asset value that this organization holds really comes to the fore and, and makes this something where, you know, it's like two or three years. I, I think we're talking about a half decade at least, and that's going to require luck. Like, I, you know, you think about the senators who you described as not very good. Well, they traded Mike Hoffman and really launched that rebuilding process in 2017. Like, that's six years ago, and they're still not good. You know, Vancouver's not going to have to do it on the on the cheap necessarily because of the market, mm. and there are other natural advantages. Like, people want to play in Vancouver versus in Canada, right? I, I mean, without question. So there's natural advantages that should allow Vancouver, you know, they're not going to be able to approximate a quick New York Rangers-style turnaround with a guy like Adam Fox and a guy like Jacob Truba forcing their way into the into the Vancouver market. But you're, you're w closer to that than you are to Canada, frankly. At this point, it doesn't change the fact that like we're looking at years, years of, of honest to goodness, disciplined work that courts more of this, more of this pain. That's the only way forward if you want to see this team play meaningful hockey. And I just think that was laid bare over the course of a road trip in which they actually played worse than their results. They've won one of four. They've been outscored 12 to 18, like 40 percent control of expected goals. And to be totally honest, all of those numbers that paint such a flattering, uh, unflattering <laughs> picture of this team's performance are straight up better than the actual performance has been. Obscure just how dreadful this has been. There's, man, there's so much to get into today. And we're going to talk about, I, I want to talk more about the coaching change thing, about what, what can be done with the roster, not to quote unquote salvage the season, but to kind of lean into the rebuild. We'll talk about that throughout the course of the show. I want to play uh, this clip from Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick on the 32 Thoughts podcast today, just kind of setting up what to maybe expect this week, why we probably won't see changes of any sort today, and Friedman doing a little reporting on, on the mood around the team. Here's Merrick and Friedman from the 32 Thoughts podcast. I think a lot of people had the same thought that I initially did. So when we started chatting as we all got online to record the podcast, I said to Jeff and Amal, you know, we might have to be updating this one on Monday morning. And, and Jeff, you made the great point. I... I just don't see why Vancouver would, even if they wanted to do anything, why they would do it on the day the Sardines and Luongo go into the Hall of Fame. I, I don't think that makes any sense. They play again on Tuesday. You could do that at another time. But I, I think we all see the direction that this is this is going. And the other thing is I could really get a sense that everyone around the organization sees it coming this way too. And... It's an inevitability. I think the question is when. I would like to think that if I was playing on a t in the NHL on a team where it looked like a coaching change was going to come, that I would still play my heart out. It doesn't matter. Like Just because you might be having a coaching change, it's not licensed for you to take your foot off the gas or, or not play as hard. 
you know, your responsibility is to your team and yourself to show pride in the job you do. It's just impossible to look at this and think that it, everybody doesn't see what's going on here and everybody's just waiting mm-hmm. for something to happen. I did have to say, I really got the impression that some of the players are kind of wondering about, you know, the Horvat situation and, and where it's going. Like to me, there's 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 a lot of people in and around the Vancouver Canucks just waiting for something to happen. They're not playing together. They, they had the one game in Ottawa where they stood up for their coach and they won that game the day after Rutherford's last radio interview. But the thing is, if you're not a good team and you're not playing well, you can do that once. But overall, you're just not good enough to win those games enough. And I see a group here that kind of sees, okay, something's going to happen and we'll just wait to see what it is or when it happens. That's Elliot Friedman from the 32 Thoughts podcast today and, you know, uses the word inevitability. We all know where this is going. It's just a question of when, of course, mentions they're not going to do anything today in all likelihood because uh, it's a really big day for the organization with the Sedins and Luongo going into the Hall of Fame. But it was so striking to me listening to that this morning, Drance, just hearing the the repetition that, you know, everyone knows what's going on. The, the atmosphere is obviously very sour and people are just waiting, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I, I looked this up, right? I went back to November of last year, November 2021. One year ago today, exactly, November 14th, 2021, Canucks lost 5-1 to Anaheim in Anaheim, right? And that finished, if you remember, a disastrous three-game road trip. They're outscored 19-6, dropped their record to 5-9-2 on that season. And it was at that point in the year when everyone saw the writing on the wall, right? And the only question became, when? When When is this team going to get serious and make some changes? A year to the day later, we are right back in that position, right? Embattled coach, flailing, underperforming t- team, everyone waiting for the other shoe to drop. And again, I know we've kind of already established on this show that the the, the change of direction clearly needs to happen. But I don't know how you can look at the identical scenario. Identical scenario playing out two years in a row with different coaches. And by the way, you know, the players on this team, they got a new coach that they seem to respond to last season, right? They've had new players. It's not as if this this team was cut down and, you know, they lost a bunch of key performers. Ilya Mikheyev was signed to help this team. Andre Kuzmenko was signed to help this team. JT Miller was extended. They traded for Travis Dermott. They've traded for Ethan Bear now. They've been bolstered. They've been given reinforcements and the exact same scenario the exact same scenario is playing out as we saw last year and if that doesn't convince you that major changes are necessary I I really don't know what will and as somebody pointed out in the inbox you know it's the third straight year of a bad start that's true as well but it was so striking to me to hear that from Friedman we're we're having the exact same conversations with the almost the exact same group of players that we were a year ago today well so why let them off the like everyone's waiting for something to happen well why let them off the hook like learn to compete learn to compete as friedman advocates for regardless of the circumstance or you're gone we're not changing the coach and letting you off the hook you're waiting you're waiting around no like don't don't do that in my view don't do that don't give the easy out of a breath of fresh air Make this team work through it. Make this team work through it. See who can handle it. See who can be a character enough pro 
to be part of the next two, three years, which is going to be tough, which is going to be painful. Like, see who can handle it. See who can handle it. This is an opportunity that management shouldn't waste. I legitimately think they'd be an error if they moved quickly to fire Bruce Boudreau at this point. Uh, genuinely. And, and if they do, if they do, it can't be an interim. It has to be someone with years on their deal who's going to be judged on their development of players. Oh, see, I who's disagree. going to be judged on the long view. I think the interim is the route, the or interim is the perfect route to go right now. So here's the thing. I I would but agree with you. Then you're going to be misaligned. You're going to have a guy But this season's done. This season's done anyways. So they're going to you're like it, it you know for because you got to bring in someone. But you got to bring in someone whose in whose alignment, whose interests are to develop players for the long-term benefit of the organization, not do a good enough job that they pad their resume and have a, a sort of leg to stand on in future job interviews. Period. Like, period. That's what the team needs. But the thing with going for the long-term hire is if you do it, if you do end up with the the perfect hire, right, you risk what you're talking about, which is, you know, muddying the waters and not uh, maximizing your chances at a really good draft pick this year, which, as we all know, could be so key. And I want to talk more about, you know, how maybe to best position themselves in the draft later in the show. But that's the concern for me. And here, here's the thing. I would agree with you about Boudreaux if management hadn't been so openly and repeatedly critical about him. Because... I just don't see the upside in allowing that sort of atmosphere and that sort of public relationship to exist between your president of hockey operations and your front office generally and your head coach. That I, I, I really struggle to see how that's in the best interests of the organization long term. So I'm not saying make the coaching change. Oh, you got to get again a guy in here who will improve the structure of the team so you can really stabilize and turn things around. I just think it's an untenable and and kind of ridiculous situation to have this open antagonism almost between coach and front office. So that's why I would make the coaching change. But I also call, I also agree with you that you should not let the players off the hook. You should not let the players off the hook whatsoever here. And by the way, Jim Rutherford said last week that, you know, depending on the results of this road trip, and we've all seen how it's played out, it was going to be time to hold the players accountable, time to do something uh, to get their attention, right? See, I think it's easy to turn this around. First of all, I want to read a text that came in unsigned, but really good one. You change the coach again and keep these players next year, same date, we will be having the same conversation. 100%. Uh, I agree. 100%. Now... I, like, I mean, why can't you make a trade that weakens this team as opposed to firing Bruce Boudreaux? When you come back, you hold a press conference with, with you know, the three guys, all three, the triumvirate, Alvin, Rutherford, Boudreaux. We're all frustrated. This hasn't gone the way we want it to. Um, our, we're, we're switching gears. You know, we're, we're going to focus on structure collaboratively here. We're going to stop. Um, you know, some of the conversations that we've been having publicly and we're going to and we're going to recommit to being a team to get this club out of them and, and, and launch the rebuild there. Launch the rebuild there. Now, if you if you do it with a new coach, I don't think it can be an interim. If you do it with a new coach, unless it's someone in like unless it's Colleton, someone who's like got some skin in the game with the organization. But do you really want to stabilize Abbotsford? Like unless it's something like that, I think you're best off. Your best bet is to just 
keep this where it is. Challenge the group to find their own way through. I think you can manage the public relations side of it. The public relations side of it's not going to improve anyway so long as this team is losing, especially in this market. And that's one of the challenges that they're going to have to address. Part of it, in my view anyway, is going to be evaluating the character of the players on the roster, who's going to be able to handle the years of pain that are going to be required for this team to matter again. So if you can get as you said, the triumvirate on the same page publicly, I can get behind it then, right? Because you start to paper over and you start to at least reduce the sense that there is this kind of toxic atmosphere hanging around the team. I can get behind that. I want to talk more about player movement because I think you're 100% right. You cannot let these players off the hook. Rutherford said it himself. We've all seen how the road trip has played out. It's time to start holding them accountable, and I think it's also time to start thinking about I don't want to say tank for Bedard, but yeah, let's say it. It's tanking for Bedard. It's how can you actually feasibly go about improving your draft lottery position uh, this season. We'll talk about that on the other side. More Canucks talk coming up uh, here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, the, uh, the, the Dunbar Lumber text line, 650-650, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It is overflowing, bursting at the seams with feedback after another two losses uh, over the weekend for the Vancouver Canucks and now us all wondering... What's next? What's next? What will we see? When will we see it uh, from this team? And Saskatchewan Joe texted in, guys, we get it. We're waiting and it's due. In these incredibly difficult circumstances, from a management standpoint, please discuss some directions the organization can take, trades, etc. Now, we we were in disagreement there about the uh, the best way to proceed with the coach. I have no problem whatsoever with going with an interim coach, right? Just to end the awkwardness and the kind of bizarre relationship that now exists publicly between Bruce Boudreaux and the front office. You'd rather keep Boudreaux. That's fine. I can see your perspective. I think we are both in agreement though, in agreement though that like when we talk about oh something has to change, you know they got to do something right now. We're not talking about trying to salvage this season and make a run up the standings. For me, when I think about that, and I do think this is untenable, and there does have to be some acknowledgement and hopefully the be- at least beginning of a change of direction, beginning of major surgery on this team, it's about the future. It's not about this year. It's not about next year. It's about the future, setting this team up to be successful in the future. And obviously that means, and we all know who's at the top of this draft in this year, it's Connor Bedard, the North fan kid, the phenom, so obviously we're going to be thinking about how can you maximize your chances of la- of landing Connor Bedard. I just want to give some uh, some kind of context here, right? The Canucks currently have the third worst points percentage in the league. They're ahead of Columbus. They're ahead of Anaheim. I'll throw this out to the listeners and you as well, Drance. I was kind of adding it up this morning. How many teams in the league are you strongly confident that the Canucks are better than? How many teams are there that you look at it and say, you know what? I, I can say with a high degree of confidence, the Canucks are better, more talented than that team. So I, I'll, I'll give you the ones that I came up with, okay? Arizona, Chicago, I know they're both higher in the standings right now, but you look at their underlying numbers, they're both terrible. Arizona, Chicago, Anaheim, Philly, Columbus, San Jose. Montreal is a question mark. I would have said it 100% in the season, the way they or before the season, the way they're playing, Montreal is a question mark for me. So either way, that's 
what, seven or eight teams? Maybe seven, I think, actually. Yeah, it's seven if you include Montreal that I can look at and say I am very, very confident the Canucks are better than those teams. Only seven, right? Now, that doesn't mean they there's no other teams that might end up on that list. I'm just saying here on November 14th, that's my list. So I look at it right now. I'll give you I'll give you at least three more. Three First more. All, all right. Mo- Montreal is a no-doubter. Montreal for sure. Montreal's getting every bounce offensively. Now, they're playing well and they play hard for Marty St. Louis, who's wildly impressive. And I like their young talent. Like I like Kirby Doc on the wing. I like Suzuki. I like Cole Caulfield. So I want to be clear that this is not a negative take by any means. I'm just fading the idea that Montreal is going to – like, here's the thing about the Canucks. I keep saying I'm expecting this team to start to win weeks of games, and I believe that still to this day. Uh, Here's why. Their goaltending, once it gets sorted out, and I believe that Thatcher Demko is too good to have a full-on down year. He might have a down year for him, but I still think he's going to be pretty close to league average at worst – over over the long haul and to do that he's going to need to be far better than league average going forward um you also still have a power play like when power play one's on the ice this team still looks dangerous every single time um i've i really liked how the power plays performed and at the end of the day so long as you've got really good goaltending and the high-end skill to put out you know in a lethal pp1 like over the long haul of 82 games, I think you're going to win. Like, I think you're going to win a fair number of games, even with all of this team's fatal flaws along the back end, um, up front. You know, I, that for me, this team is materially better than Montreal. And I would probably add Ottawa, and I would probably add Detroit. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with Detroit. I can see where you're coming from with Ottawa as well. But they're they're on the border for me, right? Like maybe it ends up that way and it wouldn't shock so. me, but it's not I can't I, I can't sit here right now and say, Oh yeah, the Canucks are clearly better than both Detroit and Ottawa. I, I think they're at least an eighty five point pace true talent team, which gets them to about eighty at this point, even with all the ground they've given out, still gets them to about eighty. So I, I still think that's as low as we're going here. As low as we're going. Particularly if you change the coach and the vibe around this group. Um, I think you need to make moves to weaken them significantly if you're going to bypass some of those teams. And, you know, I think it's important to note, too, you, you, you called it the tank for Bedard thing. It's not about tanking for Bedard, for me, in my view. The Bedard thing is convenient, right? The, the um, Celebrini thing is convenient. The fact that there's two Vancouver-born centermen at the apex of consideration in the 2023 and 2024 drafts, that's good from a like PR excitement selling hope standpoint for the organization, but that's a convenience. That's not strategy. You can't decide to punt on this season because you want to land Connor Bedard, in my view. You have to tank on this season, in my view, because you want to give yourself the best possible chance of getting at least one of the the level below the top three, right? Forget Mitchkov, forget Fantilli, forget Bedard. Yeah, although maybe you're hoping that uh, Mitchkov falls because of his weird contract status. You're, you're tanking for Brandon Yeager. You're tanking for Zach Benson. You're tanking for Leo Carlson. Like, that's the, that's the class of player that you want to be in the mix for. And if you're going to be in the mix for that, you need to be bottom five. You need to be bottom five. And for me, this team's not close, not going to get close to being bottom five 
unless they make moves to significantly weaken who they are. Yeah, I think a bottom, and look, we can quibble over, you know, Detroit, Ottawa, whatever. I think a bottom 10 finish right now with the team as it is, totally in play. I would probably say even a bottom eight finish is absolutely in play. Not a guarantee, far from a guarantee, but absolutely in play. But I agree that to get into that next tier, to move down into that next tier, the bottom five, that's going to take work. Yeah, I don't you need to be bottom seven though, right? Like bottom ten is fine. Yeah, yeah, no, that's bottom, what I'm saying. But to, to move to, to go down farther, it's going to take work. I'm 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 agreeing with you, right? Like we're, I think what I'm saying is there's already you're if you left if you left everything the same, bottom ten, bottom eight, totally in play. But to get lower than that, I don't want to say better, but you know what I mean, worse or lower than that, it's going to take work. I don't see a reason to delay the process of starting that work. Right, I like I, and and it's not to say that you can just wave your magic wand and you know you call up uh, all the other teams in the league and you unload all of your pending UFAs or whatever right now. But there's no reason to delay and at least start to consider moves that are going to one potentially return you assets which are valuable, or even if you don't get assets back, at least reduce the chance that you're going to win games for the rest of the year. And you know you start to look at the pending UFAs on this team. Obviously, Bo Horvat, number one on that list. That's a more complicated deal. You want to make sure you get that right. Maybe the organization is is still hoping to find a way to sign him, but that's the clear number one guy. If you're talking about making it harder for this team to win games for the rest of the year, well, one of your best players is a pending UFA, who it's probably not going to make any sense whatsoever to sign to a long-term deal. So why not lean into it? Why not start that process now rather than waiting to February, rather than waiting to the trade deadline to to do that, right? And again, I'm not saying you can find a trade tomorrow, but you have to move up that timetable with this purpose in mind. I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you at all, uh, unfortunately, because Bo Horvat's been everything this organization could have wanted. Uh, so I hate to I hate to say this about a person like that, but I, think I agree. Right. And and one thing is one thing is that is in line with Rutherford's mo, right? Rutherford often uh, makes the first splash on the NHL trade market when he's at the helm of a hockey operations group. I know it's been a relatively conservative start from the Canucks president of hockey operations. Uh, I know that Patrick Alvin mans the phones tech, uh, typically for the Vancouver Canucks, but you know. Rutherford's MO is often to get out ahead of it, and perhaps we could see that here. I, I want to bring up my favorite thing to bring up in disagreeing with you, by the way, Jamie. Uh-huh. Uh, D- Dom LeCision's model. <laughs> all right, all right. Cur- currently, Dom LeCision's model gives the Vancouver Canucks only a 10% chance, a 10% chance of finishing behind just one of the Sharks and the Ducks, right? It gives them a 0% chance of finishing last in the Pacific Division. Mm-hmm. 48% likelihood now of being sixth, but still a 33% chance, a one in three, which isn't outside the realm of possibility of being fourth or fifth, and still 19% chance of making the playoffs. Okay? 19%. That's that you, you know during the Boudreaux bump era, they never crested above 20. Yep. So there's still enough time at this point that their playoff chances are about equal. To when fans were getting mad at me for not taking their chances seriously on the run last season, right? Like they're not dead in the water still. There are it's a realistic long shot for them to make the playoffs at this moment. So you know, I really it's hard when a team is losing like this and when they look the way they did against Toronto, against Boston. But it is far from outside 
the realm of possibility. It is a it is a chance worth taking at least somewhat seriously, even while recognizing that the odds are long that this team crawls not just ahead of Montreal, but back into the fringes of where they're playing games that might even matter at some point in December and January. For sure. I understand that. And again, I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but I also look at, I know you were tweeting some of these out over the weekend. If you look at the the kind of underlying numbers of the team's five-on-five game, right? Shot attempt share, expected goal share, which are frequently the most reliable predictors of what a team is going to do over the rest of the game. What are they? They're 25th out of 32 in both of those metrics. That's... That's bottom eight, right? That's bottom eight. So, yeah, they could improve on that. That form could improve, but it's not as if they're this team that has, you know, actually pretty good or you know, like like Ottawa has really good underlying numbers, but the percentages haven't gone in their way, right? And I'm not saying they're at, Ottawa's actually a top 10 team, but you you can look at that and say, okay, well, Ottawa is a team that you might expect to get some better results here. Other than the goaltending, which, yeah, I would expect to be better, but other than the goaltending for the Canucks, there's not a lot in their profile that you look at and say, oh, man, they're just not getting the bounces. So that's why I do see, and again... <laughs> they actually are way worse than I expected. You know, I'm, I'm, getting a lot of, I'm getting a lot of people saying things to me like, Drance, you were right. It's like, no, I wasn't. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think this team was an abject... I didn't think this team was going to be 25th by every relevant underlying metric 20 or 15 games into the season, 15 and change. I didn't think this team was going to be completely hopeless at five on five. I didn't think JT Miller was going to go from a 99 point first line center to being basically unplayable in the middle. I I didn't think that Oliver Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers were going to fall off this significantly, this steeply. I thought this team, I definitely didn't see them having really bad goaltending relative to the rest of the league. I thought they were going to be at least above average in in between the pipes. I still think they'll get close to average over the course of the season. So, you know, the level at which this team has played is genuinely a surprise to me, right? Like, I did not have this right. I thought they would for sure be in the mid-90s at least. I thought they were a pretender in the playoff race, but I didn't think they were like an absolute abject fraud. I just thought they were, you know, like a couple bricks short of a full house. And I think, you know, you look at those numbers again, 25th in, in shot attempt share and expected goal share. I'm not expecting those to look better in a couple weeks after they've played LA, Vegas, Colorado, Vegas, Washington, Florida. So again, I think a bottom seven to 10 finish with this current state of the roster is totally plausible. Not a guarantee. You're right. They could, they could, Demko could go in a two month heater and they could charge up back into that kind of mushy middle area. There's no doubt about it. But again, you look at the underlying numbers here and they are not pretty. And you look at just whatever the vibes, whatever you want to call it, the atmosphere. If nothing changes, I think that's completely realistic. But getting back to doing the work to, you know, make it uh, improve those lottery odds, improve your place in the standings even more. So we talk about Bo Horvat, the other pending UFAs they have. Luke Shen and Kyle Burrows on the back end. I, I really like both of those players, but I'm not sure how much that's moving the needle for you. I mean, I don't know. I guess with the state of their defense, it is if you decide to kind of get ahead uh, and move one or both of those players. Uh, the other one is Andre Kuzmenko, who was apparently a healthy scratch uh, against Boston. I don't I don't know what to make of this situation. We've talked about how complicated a potential contract extension would be. Now he's been moved out of the lineup despite being one of the more productive players, despite fitting really well with Elias Pettersson at five on five. He's a pending UFA. 
I don't know. I mean, is is that a guy that you can contemplate moving, contemplate getting out ahead of it and saying, you know what, we're going to try to recoup some value here on this player while we can strike while the iron is hot? I really don't know what to make of that situation with Andre Kuzmenko. I mean, clearly they're just fumbling about trying to figure out an answer of some kind, right? Uh, I like that. I typically like that. I always say one thing I like is when a coach is still trying to find answers, particularly as their seat gets as hot as, you know, molten lava, magma. (laughs) It's not just a hot seat. It's a magma seat that Bruce Boudreau sits atop at the moment. And I like that he's still looking for answers. Now, do I think scratching Andre Kuzmenko is the right answer? I don't. Do I want to see young players and guys who might have a future or any future with this team given more ice time, perhaps at the expense of some of the vets who, you know, never seem to be the ones accountable for mistakes? Oh, yeah. I definitely want to see that. But I like that Bruce Boudreaux's not just doing the old, you know, uh, at least defend the work I did thing of just playing the roster you were given. I'm playing the roster. What, what do you want me to do? I'm playing the roster I was given. I hate that. It drives me nuts. I like to see a coach looking for answers, uh, you know, scrambling, trying things. Do I think the scratching Kuzmenko is the right answer? I don't. But again, I give credit to a coach in a situation like Boudreaux is trying anything to get the team going, particularly on the second leg of a back-to-back against a really tough opponent like the Canucks faced on Sunday night in Boston. Carmine and Poco text in 650-650. Okay, but even if we tanked or just ended up bottom 7, 8, 10, whatever, we get this blue-chip prospect. Is it even a start? How long till this player becomes relevant? Uh, Or two, three years of top 15 picks even. Is it a start with the terrible contracts we have? Our start to this has to be creating space, removing these bad contracts in the next two to three years, along with drafting hopefully top 10 players in the upcoming drafts. And I agree with you, Carmine, that undoing and dismantling the team is just as important as where you're picking in the lottery this year. I'm talking about what can happen, you know, in the next month, in the next two months. Realistically, you're not going to be able, I don't think, to create a ton of cap space beyond somebody like Bo Horvat in season. It's going to be, you're not going to be able to move OEL, obviously. Tyler Myers moving this year, given the way he's playing, is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Tanner Pearson is injured right now. He's been really struggling to start the season. So I'm not saying that there's nothing you can do ever with any of those players. You might be able to find solutions, even if they're painful at some point. But those are all off-season moves. Those are moves uh, that you, I, 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 I think so. I disagree with you. Well, what, do you, what would you most, see? Most likely, but here's the thing. You don't have to clear cap space for this season to clear cap space. If you're trading sure. years you're still creating cap space. You're still ducking long-term cap liabilities. And I very much think one of your best routes in season to clearing you know, some of the longer or bigger deals that the Canucks have on the books are to offer teams the ability to significantly upgrade on you know, deals that they consider to be dead money, holding them back for actually useful players with matching cap hits or with cap hits that extend for three years when the deal you're taking back is only two. Right, You repeat the process the next year with an expiring. I, I mean, it's going to take that sort of disciplined relentlessness to get off of, uh, off of money in, in a flat cap environment, right? And maybe the flat cap environment's relaxed or eased a bit this offseason, but it's only going to be a bit, most likely. Thereafter, maybe you get more breathing room. But again, that helps the teams with efficient deals more than it helps you. And for a team that 
you know, needs to be taking steps backwards now and backwards with purpose and creativity. Um, you know, that's not a panacea here. Um, uh, for me, anyway, I think you have to start immediately. Like, I don't think you you have to start. Look up, look up all the guys playing less than 17 minutes with cap hits of three and a half million or more and call all of those teams. It's Josh Bailey playing third line minutes at five million for the next two years on a team with playoff designs. That's a good target, right? That's two years left on a deal. The useful guy been around, played for Barry Trotz. Like, you know, he's a, he's a good hard pro helps you at center, which you're going to need. You're going to need someone to play center. Maybe you can rebuild his value a bit. Uh, send him on as a rental a year from now. Like that's that, those are the types of deals you target and you don't target them for the names of the guys that you want to trade. Not, not for Tanner Pearson or Myers or whomever. I'm, I'm talking about your good players, like your good players should, should be going out for contracts like that. That's the, that's the route here. Um, you know, I'll, I'll do more. I'll dive more into this and sort of model out how, how I see uh, options I see for tearing this down. But for me, I think you can start right away. I think you can start right away because part of what you have to do now is take back bad money for good players. My question, and we can maybe get tackle this um, a little bit more in the final segment of the show as well, but my question is, who are the players on the Canucks that fit that mold? I see Connor Garland. I'm not sure I see a lot of other guys that fit that mold where you can swing a deal like that in season with another team. But we can talk about that more later on in the show. 650-650, again, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. Up next, Gemma Karsten-Smith. She covers the Canucks for the Canadian Press. Joins us every Monday. She will be on the show. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650, Monday edition of the program. Uh, big day, big day around the Canucks, not just because of the drama swirling around the team following another pair of losses on the road over the weekend. Of course, Daniel and Henrik Sedin and Roberto Luongo all going into the Hockey Hall of Fame today as well. Uh, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And I'm coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. And uh, now joined by one of our favorites here on the show, our Monday regular, Gemma Karsten-Smith, who covers the Canucks for the Canadian press. Gemma, how are you? Um, I'm much better than the Canucks are. How are you guys? <laughs> yeah, I think also much better uh, than uh, than the Canucks are right now. We're going to run through some of the uh, the most interesting audio uh, from the last week with you. And, you know, as always, there's plenty to choose from uh, with the Canucks right now. But, I mean, before we get into that, do you just have a thought about what we saw over the weekend, what we've seen on this road trip so far, and, and what it says about uh, the direction of this team going forward? I think it just shows that anytime you get excited, you should temper it um, because it's just one step forward, 17 steps back. Um, We just keep seeing and talking about the same things again and again and again. And we're going to do it again today because that's just what keeps happening. It's we keep seeing the same uh, missteps. We keep seeing the same lulls in games. We keep seeing the same players make insane giveaways that lead to disgusting goals. It's, it's just everything old is new again, and none of it is fun. 
Yeah, and it's not just it's not just the first couple of months of this season, right, or the first month plus of this season. It's uh, it's going back to this time last year where we we're having a lot of the same discussions as well. Uh, let's get to some of the clips. Uh, first up, you've chosen one from J.T. Miller. Yeah. So first up, uh, we're going to hear from J.T. Miller after Friday's practice. You know, I'm not on uh, the trip, so uh, I can't really talk about what that practice looked like. But here he is talking about the team's mentality ahead of that Toronto game on Saturday. And there's going to be times where it's easy to get down and think, here we go again type thing. But we've got a lot of games left. And um, like I said, we're doing you know a lot of good things. We just need to find a way to play 60 minutes. And I think today we had to come in and learn from our mistakes from previous games, but also have a good practice, You know, be physical on each other, have some good laughs. But it all comes with hard work, and I think we had a good practice today. And Gemma, it's so striking to listen to that after we've known the results of the next two games and we've seen the next two games play out. Because what have we heard from Bruce Boudreaux, right? There's always this 10-minute lull where the team seems to stop playing. You hear JT Miller talking about playing that complete game. We've heard it so many times before, and yet it never seems to translate to actually doing it in the games. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, good practices do not, in fact, translate into good games. Um no matter what you say ahead of time. And the thing about Miller is that he's one of these guys who keeps preaching, playing complete games and competing and all of these things. And he's talking about the need to play a full 60. And then he's one of the guys who seems to like fall asleep in the middle of a game. And like, even in the middle of play that um, uh, goal yesterday that he was responsible for in Boston was uh, agarious is probably the best word I have for it, where he just kind of, uh, he goes to kind of stick check Taylor Hall and just was nothing there. Um, it's it's yeah. It's so um, uh, it's such a stark contrast to him saying we need to compete. Everyone needs to be competing for a full sixty minutes. Blah blah blah. It just shows that talk and action are two very different things. The I want to bring this up because I don't know if you saw the Rick bonus after hours interview on Saturday, not to, not to answer your lovely quote with another quote, (laughs) but the bonus interview that he gave had this great line. Bad teams are led by no one. Average teams are led by coaches. Good teams are led by the players. And this is something I talk about a lot uh, or have talked about a lot over the history of the show that, Really, a room has to hold itself accountable. Coaches and GMs, are they're not paid enough. They're just a little too disposable in, in the contemporary NHL. It really needs to come from players themselves. And I often wonder, does a player who is likely to have had a couple of giveaways with the puck going quickly the other way have the ability to come into the room, yell at the guys and say, guys, we have to get playing the right way, or is the result of that occasionally eye rolls um it was a good practice by the way I was there in Toronto it was a good practice I was surprised by how light and fun and high intensity it seemed but it's hard to figure out why this isn't translating isn't it 100 percent, definitely difficult to figure out and yeah he's uh coughing up pucks but he also wears an A so I think even if he's making mistakes he still has a responsibility to uh step up and and be a leader um and i think that we've seen in the past that he has been a leader but when his when he when he's literally giving up and i this is not his uh this weekend was not his most um blatant giving up in the middle of a game 
um, showing performance, whatever words are hard. Um, but he, you still, when you see that behavior from him, it, I can't imagine that's, a, that's an easy leader to follow. So he needs to um, gut check himself there, I think. Yeah, it really is striking. And the other thing is, and I know he's gone on um, injured reserve now, Gemma, but, you know, the other one thing we saw in the Montreal game was Tanner Pearson, another guy, veteran, won Stanley Cups, and goes out and takes a really bad penalty early in that game that immediately puts uh, the team on the back foot. And I think that's kind of the surprising thing is it's not necessarily the young players only making mistakes that are costing games. It's it's the guys who are theoretically supposed to be the veteran leaders of this team who are you know, putting the team in a really difficult position quite often. Totally. And with Pearson, that was not the first time. It wasn't no. even the second time. It wasn't even the second time in, like, the week. So I think that there's something going on with Pearson where he just is not finding his game. He's, it seems like uh, the play is ahead of him, and he's constantly struggling to catch up, and that is where um, those penalties were coming from. Hopefully um, some time away as he uh, recovers from this hand surgery, will help him. Maybe, I, I always think that there's something for to be said for players watching games, whether they're out injured or they're being healthy scratched. Maybe he'll pick something up and uh, come back a little more uh, engaged. Um, but who knows? Uh, I know lots of people were calling for him to be a healthy scratch mm-hmm. uh, before that injury. So uh, maybe this presents opportunities for other guys because, like you said, the vets are not exactly getting it done. Speaking of uh, one of the vets, though, who I would say very much is getting it done this year and is one of the most reliable uh, and, and high-effort players on the team, that's Luke Shen, and I know he's the uh, the source of your next clip. What, uh, what are we going to hear from Luke Shen? Mm-hmm. So this one's also from Friday's practice, and um, Drance can speak more to this than I can, but apparently that practice saw Miller and uh, people's hero, Luke Shen, engage in a pretty feisty battle drill. So uh, let's hear from the other half of that matchup. Here's Shen talking about how his team needs to compete. I don't think it should be like, well, today is a day that you know we should decide to compete and see how tomorrow goes, and then maybe we should compete again the next day. It's got to be an everyday thing. So um, that's the way I view competing, and... and uh, you know, some, sometimes there's no question. You got to dig in and you got to find it. But uh, at the end of the day, there's no excuses to to not find a way to do it. What jumped out to you Gemma, about about that one, Gemma? Sorry, Drance. No worries. Um, uh, what jumped out to me about that one is that you are still seeing Luke Shen compete, and even like he is not a perfect human. Um, like I said, he is a people's hero, uh, but he's, he's not a perfect hockey player, but you are always seeing him compete. He's, he's being really physical. The areas of his game that um, we appreciate him for, the, the physicality, the standing up for his teammates, all those things, we're seeing that in spades this season. Um, yeah, he's not an offensive defenseman. Sorry to break it to you, he's never going to be an offensive defenseman. He's never going to be a speedster. But um, you're seeing him rely on his strength and, and – try to make his team better in, in the ways that he can. Um, I think that he's, he's someone who's putting his words into action and uh, doing what he can to, to move this team in the right direction here. Gemma, with players like Luke Shen, honestly, even being around the club over the course of this week, it, it's felt like even Shen seems down, right? Like it's, it's impossible. It's, it's overwhelming. Um, in the event that this losing continues, which frankly might be in the best interests of the organization, how much will you be reading into how players respond to 
the continuance of circumstances that at the moment anyway, from the outside looking in, feel, feel pretty toxic. For sure. I think that's a huge narrative of this season going forward. And that's crazy to say when we're not even a month into the regular season. But it's also just so true. It's also a weird season for this club. It's a season where we saw the closed door meeting within the first three games. Like that, Everything is crazy. Everything is bananas. We just have to come to expect it. As much as everything old is new again, it's also so weird because none of us expected this. Who would have expected Demco to have one win on the season, right? So um, I think that the way that we hear players speak about their individual performances, the team's performances, and um, what they need to see going forward is going to be so telling from here on out. Um, and you can you can absolutely hear it in Shen's voice there. The way he's talking about how you need to dig in and uh, it's not always easy. It can't be easy for this guy. This guy's won Stanley Cups, and he's trying to grind out the fifth win of the season. Like, that's that's tough for anybody. Well, and, and not only has Shen won Stanley Cups with Tampa, but he's also a guy who really had to dig deep, you know, went from being a, a high draft pick and, a you know, a blue chip player for a Canadian team to a guy who really had to dig deep and kind of figure out a way just to stick to the NHL and was able to do that. And I can only imagine the frustration when you've been through that process and that experience with Luke Shen to all of a sudden be in a situation where, at least from the outside looking in, it doesn't seem like everyone else is, you know, having bringing that same level of, of effort on a day-to-day basis as you. Oh, absolutely. I remember vividly when uh, Shen got traded up to Vancouver. He'd been scratched by the Ducks. Yeah. And it, it, you could just tell that, like, his confidence was was had taken quite a bruising. Um, and just to see him continue to build himself up from there, he like he's become a fan favorite in this market. He's become a leader in that locker room. Yeah, he doesn't wear a letter, but he's he's definitely a leader in that locker room. Um, to see how far he's come, he, and he's more of the blue chip player that. Uh, not necessarily in the way he was expected to be when he was drafted, but he's come to to be such an important key piece of the team in a very different way. Um, and I can't imagine what it's like for him to, to feel um, when you see people giving up in the middle of the games, to see the continued lulls in the middle of games, to see your team coughing up yet another multi-goal lead in the third period. Like, I, I just... The frustration, I don't think I don't think frustration is the right word. It just must be like devastation. In conversation with Gemma Karsten Smith of the Canadian Press here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet six fifty. Uh, you mentioned Thatcher Demko, how shocking it is to see his numbers this year, only one win on the season. I guess a relative bright spot for the Canucks this year has been his backup, Spencer Martin, played again in Toronto on Saturday, didn't get the win, uh, but I know he is uh, hes the source of your next clip for us. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty bold move for Boudreaux to start Martin in Toronto on that Saturday night. Saturday night, Hockey Night Canada, marquee matchup, all those things. But he'd obviously earned it. it was, Martin has worked hard this year, and while it ended up being his first regulation loss, in his entire time with the Canucks, he was still pretty cerebral about uh, the game. So uh, let's listen to his post-game thoughts here. I can definitely build off this. Like, I think it's one of those things that it, it, it definitely stings that we lost. And uh, 
it's a weird feeling, but um, going forward, we're going to have to keep learning from these experiences and weathering the storm a little bit better when it comes. Uh, I'm talking about myself. What, what did you make of Martin's thoughts there, Gemma? Should he be getting more starts? Like, not just in these back-to-backs, but I, I, I just feel like he's taking the jump here. Demko's obviously struggling. I think maybe I'm on Team Martin getting more starts. Maybe? Uh, yeah, I think you're. I think it's going to happen. I, I just think so long as, so long as, especially so long as Boudreaux's in limbo, I, I, th- I think that's going to happen. Like I won't be stunned at all if Martin's first off after morning skate in Buffalo tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And like, who would have thought that that was at all possible uh, before the season began? We were all talking about how Demko was going to get all these Vesna votes, and. I, I have no idea what's going on with him, but it's just, and he also isn't getting any help from the defense in front of him. But it's the same defense or a very, very, very similar blue line that he played behind last year and got completely different results. So he's not stealing games. It's not entirely his fault, but there's definitely something going on. And I think that um, one of the only ways to shake that up is to uh, get some more starts from Martin here. Gemma with, yeah, I mean, we thought the story would be, is Demko playing too much? But I think you're right. I think the story has to be, does the club lean more on Martin as Demko goes about figuring out his game? But all of that said, do you have any doubts that Demko's going to figure it out? Oh, absolutely not. Demko is way too talented. And he's also, he's such a smart man. He He's such a thinker of the game. He has a philosophy, or philosophy psychology major there we go um he he's such a smart guy and he's he's so in tune with uh himself and and the game um that he's gonna figure it out obviously he's gonna figure it out it's just is he gonna figure it out in time to make anything of the season Uh, i don't think that he'll make anything for the canucks per se but to kind of salvage his own play and and get that conversation around him going again here Final clip uh, of uh, of this week, and uh, it's fitting that it's from Bruce Boudreau because he is the subject of an awful lot of attention, not just here in Vancouver, but around the NHL uh, right now, Gemma. So why don't you set up the uh, the final clip from Bruce Boudreau for us? Yeah, so you guys know that I love the theme. This week's theme was Weekend of Sadness, <laughs> and the Canucks capped that Weekend of Sadness with uh, the super ugly loss in Boston last night. Um, after the game, Boudreaux was asked whether his team was still mentally checked in, and uh, here's what the coach had to say. Well, I mean, if they're going to get mentally uninvolved after 16 games, then we've got a, a bigger bigger problem than, than we think here. But, I mean, uh, no, I mean, they want to win. Um, uh, you know, they, they want to do good things right now, and they're just not doing them. The weekend of sadness. I love it, including the clip from Putro Chema. That's fantastic. What what stood out to you specifically about that one? The tone of his voice. Yeah. Does this man not sound downright dejected? I'm not entirely convinced he does believe that the team still wants to do good things and win. What do you guys think? You, well, you, hold on. You know the um, the before and after pictures you see of U.S. presidents and how yes. much they oh age gosh, in four yes. years? This is like the audio version with Bruce. Oh. Like, go back and listen to his yeah. first press conference um, after the win. I think it was against L.A., his first game. And it's like a 15-minute celebration, basically, of Bruce Boudreau. And go listen to his press conferences in the last week. Like, the difference could not be more stark right now. Man, they got to do something. Like, if 
if you're going to stick with him, stop, like, not slandering, but, like, stop coming for him in the media. And if you're not going to stick with him, just let him go. Poor guy. He's, he's been standing on this plank for over a month now, um, waiting for the, the gunshot that's going to toss him into the ocean. And it's just the plank is getting shorter, but he's still standing there. It's, it's getting sad. <laughs> How much of an impact do you think it's got to have when when the commentary, the pointed commentary about how this team's playing structurally is coming from above. How, how challenging do you think that is right now for Boudreaux to navigate in addition to everything else? I think it's impossible to navigate, honestly. I think if my boss were constantly talking in public about how much my writing sucks, I would be really upset and I would not be doing my best writing. I don't think that you can do your best work when your boss is saying that your work sucks in public. And, and it's, I just don't think it's possible. Um, and that's why I'm saying that I, I think that something needs to change one way or the other. Is it salvageable in your eyes, the relationship? And I'm not talking long term, because I obviously I think we know that's off the table. But at least, you know, Drance and I were kind of kicking it back and forth earlier in the show. Is there a way where they could kind of plausibly retain Boudreaux? for the rest of the season, if they did come out with some sort of vote of confidence or something and not have it be just this, this awkward circus like it is now. It would have to be quite the friendship tour. Like, <laughs> like you know how Bruce Boudreaux loves friendships, like Hoggy and Petey are, are good buddies and that's why they should play on the same line. Like you're going to need quite the friendship tour here. Um, there'd be quite a, uh, it'd be quite the display that I think is necessary. And I just don't see it happening. I really don't. Um, and I feel bad because I think Bruce Boudreau is a, a great guy. Uh, I think that he did great things for this team last year. And uh, it's really disappointing to see how, how things have gone for him. Gemma, always really appreciate it. I have uh, a bit of a hunch, let's call it, that there will be more than enough fodder for our segment uh, next week as well. We'll see. We'll see how the week unfolds. But that's, that's just a guess on my part. Uh, keep up the great work. We'll chat next week. Never a dull moment in Canucks land. Have a good one, guys. Uh, that is Gemma Karsten-Smith covering the Canucks for the Canadian Press. Joins us every Monday to talk about some of the most interesting audio snippets from the team over the last week. And yeah, we have not been short for interesting things to chew on uh, in that segment with Gemma Karsten-Smith. And I had to laugh, Drans, uh, her theme of Weekend of Sadness, which has been a theme a number of times, a number of times over uh, recent Canucks history and to, uh, this weekend was no different. Uh, Marty the Red Texan, we were talking about Luke Shen in the course of that conversation. I just had a scary thought. Can you imagine this team without Luke Shen? I can and I think we might see it at some point later in this year as he is a pending UFA coming to, up. We yeah. have to see it. I, I think we have to see, see it. it. And honestly again, you know, I, I would keep, like, Shen's the type of guy I would probably try and keep around for as long as possible uh, just to navigate the early bit of a, a rapid change in direction. But, you know, that said, this is me talking about what the team should do. We'll see what they actually do. Perhaps that's part of the first wave of moves. Certainly it would weaken you significantly uh, and potentially weaken your resolve if if you were, in fact, to make that one of your first moves. And if that's your interest, right, if you, if you want the pain, honestly, that might be a big part of it. I, look... I love Luke Shen. I can totally see the argument for keeping him around as part of this process unfolds. 
Having said that, the team, we've talked about it at length, ad nauseum, right? How incredibly asset poor they are, how lacking in draft picks they are. Yeah. I don't know if you can miss on an opportunity to add one. Well, to, to add you one can't with by the deadline, but you can wait a couple months. Okay, you okay. Can give him, okay. You, can give him, you can give him some time to help you steady things as you do whatever it is you got to do to get set up for what's got to be. It has to be now a lengthy rebuilding process. Yeah. Like, we're done. We're done. We cannot possibly be in a world where we're going to keep thrashing against the overwhelming tide that's become so apparent to us in the first quarter uh, of this season. Okay, but at the deadline. I'm glad we're in agreement there. You can't you can't pass on that oh, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And I, to I, be fair... I haven't lost my mind. I, know, I was going to say, I was like, <laughs> wow, really? Drance is coming out? Like, we should re-sign Luke Shedd. I was like, that's a surprising one. Um, I will say, in the interest of fairness... Management has consistently been very, very clear about they have no interest in losing pending UFAs uh, for nothing by by keeping them past the deadline. We saw it with Tyler Mott last year, and again, given how this season is unfolding, I have no doubt that we will see something similar, at least with guys like Luke Shen and Kyle Burrows, uh, when we do get closer to the deadline in the new year. Final segment of the show coming up. There are still tons and tons of texts coming in. We'll read some of those. Uh, we'll continue to look at... What could be the next shoe to drop? What could actually happen over the next week, over the course of this season, going into trade deadline season, all of that? What moves make sense? What moves are plausible for the Vancouver Canucks? So keep your thoughts coming in. Final segment coming up here, Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Final segment of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It is a day off for the Canucks. They will finish their five-game road trip in Buffalo tomorrow. And, of course, uh, from a franchise perspective, Daniel Hendrickson and Roberto Luongo all will be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame today. So it is a... Uh, a, a day of celebration for the franchise, but also, of course, there is this uh, this black cloud hanging over the team as we wonder what will be the other shoe to drop, what will happen, when will it happen, uh, will we see a coaching change, will we see significant player movement. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Go ahead, Drance. I want to I want to jump in and note something prominently here. Roberto Luongo played for two coaches in the entire time that he was with the Canucks. Alain Vigneault and John Tortorella, right? Henrik Sedin and Daniel Sedin played for four, right? Mark Crawford first, mm -hmm. Alain Vigneault, John Tortorella for a year. And then Willie Desjardins. And that's it. Across a really long career. Right? Those were 17-year careers for coaches. Here's, here's another part of why, you know, I think the bed's been made with Boudreaux and should remain made. With the sides just patching it up publicly and then keeping a lid on it. If you're Elias Pettersson, you've now gone through Travis Green, Bruce Boudreaux, right? You're mm -hmm. about to have your third coach. You're entering your fifth year, and then you're going to have another one. You're for sure going to have another one, right? So, <laughs> I mean, either the fifth coach comes this season or next, but that that's a fair that's a fair bit of churn. When Bruce Boudreaux's replaced, Pedersen will have had more coaches in his five year Canucks career than Luongo had over his eight years. 
I, I, you know, at some point, you have to have stability. Otherwise, you get into that Edmonton Oilers lost generation territory where they were changing coaches every single season as if that was the issue, not the team's overall approach to winning and constructing a, 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 a team in the NHL. The next coaching hire, you have to you have to be so, so confident that you're getting the right person, right? And that's why yeah. that's why I would if if you make the coaching change, really number the only thing I would really probably seriously consider is the interim route, right? Is making and naming one of your assistants or Jeremy Colleton the interim head coach. Because unless you think there's the absolute perfect candidate, and not only that there's the one perfect candidate, but that you're going to lose them. You're not going to be able to get them unless you do it right now. I think you're taking if, – if you're like, oh, okay, who's available? Uh, this guy. Oh, we like him. Yeah, let's bring him in. I think that's completely the wrong approach. I think you've got to get to the summer, see who's available, be as diligent and as thorough as possible to make sure you are getting the right person and make sure you're getting the right person, not just from a you know stylistic point of view, a systems point of view. Obviously, we know they want a more structured coach, but make sure you're getting the right person for what the reality of this team is going to be over the next two, three, four years, right? Like we see what Marty St. Louis is doing in Montreal. You can still find a way to motivate players, even in a tough situation, even with a bad roster. I'm not saying it has Look to at be just Saturday. I'm not. I'm not having. <laughs> I'm not saying it. Yet. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Who would be the Jeff Saturday uh, of the Vancouver Canucks? I'm not saying it has to be a uh, a carbon copy of Martin San Louis, right? But you got to make sure you are getting a coach who knows what they're getting into and can still accomplish the goals of the organization in that time. And yeah, I know Elliot Friedman was on uh, Donnie and Dolly earlier today. You know, he mentioned a little bit about the coaching search, had some names out there as well, but what's the rush? What's the rush to hire a coach right now? Wait until the summer. See what's out there. See what see what you were able to do with a Horvat trade. See what you're able to do with any of the other trades and then make the decision. If you're making it from a reduced pool of candidates right now, instead of hiring an interim or instead of, as you said, patching things up with Bruce Boudreau, I just don't see why you're going to rush through the process like that at this time. The Yeah, I mean, for sure, you can't rush through the process. That's the whole problem that we're in is because the process was rushed last time out, right? The team was caught unawares of how bad they'd be, less reasonably last time than this time, by the way, and then panicked, panicked, uh, hired the coach before the, before the incoming czar of hockey operations was willing to accept the job. So you can't repeat that mistake. For me, I just think you take your time. Take your time patch things up that's the only functional way to go forward here there's no way in my mind I just do not find it compelling that Bruce Boudreaux's coaching is responsible for what's happened here you know I, I this team has failed too often under too many different structures in the last two years and failed too similarly you know if it was coaching that could do more than get a bump, a short-term bump from the PK. Surely one of the four coaches that have been responsible for the PK over the last 12 months, you know, w w would have figured it out. And Bradshaw did best, but I mean, they've had four different guys working on this. And at no point has it been like 80%, right? The, the thing we talk about with Bradshaw's work with the PK, for example, I mean, it was still humming along in like the high 70s, low 80s. Like it was enough to leapfrog the Detroit Red Wings and get out of being the worst penalty kill in the league. But it wasn't great. It's not like that was a strength of the team suddenly. 
You know, at, at some point you have to look at the fact that this team under both Travis Green and Bruce Boudreaux, men as different as it gets in terms of approach, in terms of habits, in terms of presentation, in terms of strengths, in terms of relative weaknesses, right? Have This team's failed basically the same way. Inability to kill penalties, right? Um, inability to close out games. Um, struggles to manufacture offense five on five. You know, in, at what point do we look at this and say, this team is built badly. The defense can't skate. The forwards can't check. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. And the only reasonable change to make isn't behind the bench, in my view anyway, but is to the overall club's fundamental goals and approach in building a healthy organization at the NHL level. Like That's it. That's the work. Everything else is side stuff. It's distractions, side quests. You know, <laughs> like the main quest is be good, be good. And there's only one main level. You know, you can you can do some side quests here and there if you really want. We can talk about coaching and compete, but the main quest here is so clearly about building up the fundamental strengths and asset value of this organization. Right? It's it's acquiring eleven draft picks. <laughs> over for, to, to use over the next three years you know it, it like that's the ball game that's the ball game here the club's at a draft pick deficit again by the way right they have 19 picks over the next three seasons when they should have 21 with this team that's third in the nhl in point percentage there's no cap space coming the only meaningful expiring is bo horvat he's he's your second best player like mm-hmm. like <laughs> The only answer is global, complete. The only thing to address is total failure. Not one guy's individual inability to get the team playing with structure. Not one defensive group's inability to move the puck. Not the inability of forwards to check as a whole. It's it's not enough to point to disorganization at this point. The problems are complete, entire. And, and I honestly think they're so significant that this club defies conventional analysis. Like, it's not, the system's not built for a team to fail this much this frequently in a win-now posture. It, it just doesn't happen. Like, reality eventually intrudes on most teams. Uh, it just didn't in Vancouver for so long. And then when it did, for whatever reason, the change wasn't dramatic. The change was to effectively stay the course and have a first offseason that looked fundamentally identical to the failure that had come before. And and so we're now here, and people talk about this team like it's a normal team, right? Like, oh, yeah, they might fire their coach. Like, we all know how to circle the wagons and have that conversation. The national media knows how to circle the wagons and have that conversation. You start to think about the names, who's connected to Jim Rutherford mm-hmm. historically, right? They're, oh, it's uh, Rick Tockett was the assistant coach in Pittsburgh. He was the Kessel Whisperer. Close relationship there. Uh, no one noting the irony of the Canucks hiring Travis Green's best friend, potentially. Um, also, also, uh, also the also OEL like connection Gallucci. with yeah, Rick well, the OEL, Right, <laughs> which was not a positive no, one. No, very much right? not a positive one. At some point, you'll hear Mike Vellucci's name, right? The longtime Rutherford hand, both in Pittsburgh and in Carolina. Um, you know, Barry Trotz's name's always going to linger above everything because he's a BC-born uh, head coach who's taken the year off and is about a, as big a name and about as structured a coach as you can bring in. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, all, all of this is sideshow. 
It doesn't matter who's behind the bench so long as the team is constructed this way. We now have to know that. We have to know that, right? For me, I still have never bought that Travis Green was a bad NHL coach. At most, you could say his time had come with the Canucks. But, you know, I still believe that he's got it in him to be at least average and maybe above average over time with the right team in the right situation. I definitely believe that about Bruce Boudreaux, and I defy you to find me oh, one piece of empirical on. evidence I mean, that points who, in any other direction. Who, who, who on earth is going to challenge that point? Like, that would be... Well, uh, Canucks management. Wow. <laughs> what do you mean, who on Jeez. earth? It's a, it's a constant talking point. But, is it not? Oh. Am I reading this wrong? This is what's being said. That's just so. Expl- it's not. It's not subtext, Jamie. It's text. I, I, how, do, how do you? How do you look at his resume, though? I mean, come on, and come to that conclusion. Like the I guy. The guy knows how to coach. I, I get I, what I, you're saying. What? Uh, no, it's not me who's saying. No, it. no, 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 no. I know you're right about about management, but it's just when you think about it in those terms, right? To kind of read, not just that it's a critique of the structure, but then the, to follow it to the next logical point, which is what you're saying. It just kind of warps my mind a little bit to think about it. It that should. Way. This whole thing should warp everyone's mind. This this should break brains to to actually think about the last decade and change of Canucks history should break your brain. And, and that's why, like, this team can't be discussed like a normal team. It can't. And the, the moment they left the bubble in 2020 and did what they did in that first month, I stopped discussing this team like it was a normal team. And it's been frustrating to watch. Like, it's been frustrating to watch, but now, surely, the chickens have come home to roost. Surely... When Demko returns to form as I expect, and the power play gets hot, and the Canucks start winning games, we don't forget what we know about this team. Again, there should be no grounds to try and turn this around quickly. The truth must finally be accepted, believed, and acted upon. And for me, the coaching discussion, all of that noise, what trades could they make to shake up the locker room? You know, uh, can they afford to lose a character guy like Luke Shen? I think he's more valuable to a rebuild than a fifth-round pick, as one texter said. No, he's not. No, he's not. Nothing matters more than future value, than the value that this organization might be able to have in three, four, five years from now when they actually have a chance to be a meaningful team in the NHL again, as opposed to a perpetual clown car. Uh, By the way, I asked rhetorically who would be the Jeff Saturday of the Vancouver Canucks. Of course, if you're not an NFL fan, Colts fired their coach, uh, who's very well-respected, well-regarded coach, uh, brought in Jeff Saturday, who has no previous coaching experience, uh, was an ESPN NFL competitor. They win their first game with Jeff Jeff Saturday behind the bench on Sunday, and we had some people texting in, the Sedin bros, but see, that doesn't quite work because they're already in the organization. Uh, Marcus and Gibson (laughs) suggested Eddie Lack, which I enjoy very much, but it's obvious the answer, who the Jeff Saturday of the Canucks would be, right? Like, charismatic, high-profile television analyst, fan favorite connected to the last successful era in franchise history no coaching experience uh it would be kevin bieksa but i don't think they're going in that direction <laughs> but that's, that, that's the clear analogy right it, that's who it would be the jeff saturday oh, of the vancouver canucks it, it would be kevin bieksa we're not going to see that no we're not going to see and that it, look, but i mean i mean they could do worse i just wanted to get that out there um i mean it would be fun It'd be fun for us. <laughs> fun to have Kevin Bieksa talking to the media before the game, uh, every game. I could get behind yeah, that. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to wear a helmet with my suit every day. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. That just, doesn't sound fun. Just for keep me. peppering him with questions about how he wasn't a fan favorite. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather. I'd, 
I'd rather have my uh, bad questions just be responded to with indifference as opposed to being told that, I, that I'm not very bright. <laughs> that they were bad day. questions. <laughs> uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, this question from JP from Montreal. And this this gets at gets to the heart of the uh, the question in a lot of ways. He says, I wonder at this point in the season who in the team would actually have any value without having to add or retain salary and you know we talked about the do you really want to have this conversation because it's a really sad one yeah it's a short list it's a really short list right we talked we talked about the pending ufas and i think the answer is obviously yes in all of those cases right well but i mean having to add like can you trade the guy without taking any money back or retaining that list does not include bo horvat at this point no i think at the deadline it does uh, even then, too many teams are in LTI and aren't tolling daily space. Like, you you literally need the perfect team. And yeah, that team would probably value Bo Horvat and would, and would give you something. But I mean, the mark to, to, to max your value, even with Bo Horvat, you'd need to probably take money back or retain. For sure. For sure. Without question. At, at this point, 100%. You'd be retaining. eliminating buyers. Yeah. You'd be eliminating buyers. So, I, I mean... And that's but another Paul Horvat. Look, that's another Paul Horvat. Wrink- I'll give you. That's another wrinkle of the conversation. But before we move on to the rest of that that list, like I, I, so much of this, we have people texting in. You know, will will ownership ever get on board with this kind of thing? I, just imagine the process of pitching. Okay, we're going to trade our captain, who is filling the net this year, filling the net, drafted, developed, done everything we've asked of him as a captain, having a career year. Oh, by the way, we're going to retain salary. Too, you know what I mean. We're going to trade him to another team where he's going to do his thing, uh, but also actually we got to retain salary to make that happen. That's a really really tough sell. And look, I'm not saying ownership therefore should say no to that, but it just puts into perspective how difficult this process is going to be. Like even Bo Horvat, who's the obvious, the pending UFA, having this fantastic season, plays center. So many teams would love to have Bo Horvat on their team, as you said, to really maximize the list of people who can even acquire him to really maximize the return. You probably have to retain, and that's an extraordinarily complicated thing to ask to do. There, That one's <laughs> the most straightforward trade candidate transfer, and it's still really complicated when you get down to it. Yeah, when, when ranking the trade value of Canucks players, you only get to about six or seven names before you get to Kyle Burrows. Like, just let that sink in. Mm-hmm. Just let that sink in. Really, really allow yourself to process the truth of that. Uh, I'll actually rank Canucks players by trade value uh, at American Thanksgiving. It's a habit of mine. So next week, we can get more into this topic. It's an annual piece that I do every year uh, in conjunction with our Black Saturday or Black Friday sale. Not at all cynical. (laughs) <laughs> and uh and so but you know it's an exercise that's going to feel a little bit more pertinent this time around and as for you know own what ownership decides they want to do right the, the fact is is that there just isn't any other option there just isn't any o- other option anymore there isn't there's no more wiggle room there's no more future that can be mortgaged right the, the team doesn't have enough they're not close enough to being passable to like even being just get in and anything can happen level passable. They're not close enough to that. So I, I like I don't know what else to tell you about it. There, there's no other option. This is black and white. Usually in life, things are shades of gray. Even as recently as this summer, there were shades of gray. You could at least reasonably pitch well, this group performed so well over 57 games that they should get at least another shot to prove that that's who they are. 
right? And, you know, but the moment you do the Miller deal, that logic no longer makes sense because you're not just seeing if they can repeat what they did in 57 games. You're betting that they can and betting heartily on it, right? All of a sudden, you're left with just no other options but to blow it up. <laughs> but to blow it up, like, that's it. That's all that's left. That's the only path forward now. It, it really, unfortunately, is that simple. I, I, don't, I, I would prefer it not be. Seriously, I would prefer that this team not be in this, these types of dire straits, but I see no other option forward. And I'm going to be singing the same tune when they inevitably start winning more games and the temperature diminishes. It's the only way. That's the only way that we're going to see this team be meaningfully competitive, a contender before the end of this decade. This text comes in, uh, salary retention for Bo is only for one, one season, so it's not a big deal. They already have him covered. I agree with that. I think it's the the optics, quote-unquote, of it and trying to sell it to ownership, which could be tricky. But I, w- I will also say, to the original question from JP from Montreal, right, about who has value without having to retain salary or, or add a sweetener or something, to use the Bo Horvat example, let's say you retain or or – even if you just take a bad contract back, if it's only for this season, that's a very negligible cost, right? Like if that's the grease that needs uh, added to make the trade work, then whatever. With other players, that's Horvat though. With other players, it's, as you said, you know, and we had somebody else text in and we've, we've got so many texts today that uh, I'm losing this one in the uh, in the inbox a little bit. But, you know, the, the scenario you laid out of, okay, trading an inefficient contract on the Canucks books for... Uh, an even more inefficient contract, but that's shorter term, right? Kind of the reverse OEL uh, deal with the between the Canucks and Arizona. You know, we have we've had people suggesting could JT Miller be a candidate for that, right? Would he fit into that kind of mold? That's a very very complex situation. Again, the optics of trading JT Miller just a few months or or so after you sign him to a big term a long term extension is is very very difficult. But for a lot of the other players, certainly the players with term. I mean, those are the kinds of deals you're talking about, right? Like, even a guy like Connor Garland, who we've heard, you know, there's interest in the player around the league. Before the deadline last year, his name was out there. Maybe over the summer, maybe the Canucks just didn't like the trade options were out there that were out there. At this point, given where the team is, given what the overall market around the NHL is for scoring wingers, given the fact that he's already been a healthy scratch, like, you're already to the point where you're going to have to do something where it's kind of money in, money out, and you're not recouping an asset in all likelihood if you if you do try to trade somebody like Connor Garland at this point. Well, yeah, and I mean, for me, Garland's still got a long-term deal. He's good. You know, if you're, if you're finding ways to move other guys, you're going to open up opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, is Garland at peak value now, or is Garland at peak value a year from now after he's played – first line minutes for you and been a PP one mainstay and, and has enjoyed the, you know, 15 point bump that he'll likely receive as a result. I mean, I mean, for me, Garland's a classic hole. So right? how Besser's a classic hole. Okay. The counter on Garland would be though, right? Let's say, let's say you can do the deal that you take back a, uh, a contract that expires after this year. Right. And you can do that right now. And that's all you get for Connor Garland. Does that? No, so I don't. I, I don't do that. So I think you, but I you, but you get his value. You get two things though, right? You get one. You improve your draft lottery position because you're removing a good player sure. from the team, and you get the cap space going into the summer, which is which I, is I really just, important as well. 
I'd rather do it with a guy who's not cost controlled and whose value is spiked in, in Bo Horvat as opposed to a guy who I think can be more if I, um, you know, like the, you're right. The return on Garland in a flat cap world where wingers are hugely devalued and where he's mostly a middle six winger for your team and doesn't play PP1. For me, it's a very, very straight line between Garland having significantly more value a year from now than he does today, especially if you're deliberately weakening your team. So for me, Garland's a classic hold. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'd understand it. I, I wouldn't criticize it probably. But if you're thinking really strategically about what should come first, for me, Garland's a hold. I'm just thinking of ways you can, again, lean into being bad and also open up cap space. Right. And like Connor Garland is probably the guy in the middle of that of that Venn diagram. Bo Horvat's the other one now. But Bo Horvat, that cap space is coming off your books one way or another in this offseason. So I'm talking about, you know, going forward, moving money from your books. I just think in season, Connor Garland is probably that guy because I know we have people texting in, you know, Tyler Myers, OEL. Those ones are so complicated. You know, OEL with no move clause, all of that potential buyouts in the summer. I get that. But if you're talking about right now, like start to turn this around, start to carve out that cap space, Connor Garland looks like a prime candidate to me. I, I understand the theory that, hey, he's he could have more value down the road, but I also just think you have to get real at some point about opening up some money here and getting rid of some of these deals that are on the books. Absolutely. No, and you do. And that's why I wouldn't be too critical of, of yeah. a step to do that. I just think you have to start – I for me – it's going to be such a lengthy process and you open up a fair bit of space just with expiring guys, right? In a world where even guys like Dermot and Bear get flipped. Yes. Right? Those are the those are you other are, names on my list that that I could you're, see. You're, yeah. You're no longer beholden to those qualifying offers, right? Mm-hmm. And then plus Horvat, I mean, for me anyway, there's like a class of guy and Pearson's among them. Myers is Myers is one of them. Um Besser is one of them where I just think their value is so low anyway that you probably are best off waiting till their expirings or rebuilding their value with the opportunity that will come should you execute the the larger surgery that I think this ha- this process has to begin with. We got to go. Thanks for all the feedback. It was fantastic. We'll be back tomorrow on a Canucks game day. The Hockey PDO cast of Dmitry Filipovich is next. Sportsnet 650.